As you're turning to Luke chapter 7, you might want to hold your place in Luke 7 and in Luke 5. We're going to look at a couple of passages today. But we've been in a series about loving like Jesus, looking at how Jesus loves, why Jesus loves, and using that sort of as a, as a springboard for how we should love um, in this world. Um, I wanted to begin this morning just sort of thinking and looking, looking back a little bit. Um, Recently, I was at the funeral of a man who was almost 100 years old, and he, so he'd lived for almost 100 years. As I'm sitting there um, listening to stories about this guy and some of his life and that sort of thing, it dawned on me, this guy has lived for a long time, and he has seen a lot of things change. I mean, over the course of a century, like a lot has changed, and I started thinking, um, you know, I'm, I'm not even 40 years old, but I... I've actually seen a pretty good bit of change in my life. And some of you are older than I am, and you look, you go, yeah, the world has changed. A lot has changed. So I'm just thinking out loud for a moment about some of the things um, that have changed in my life. Um, One of those things is car seats. Anybody know what I'm talking about? My wife and I argue about car seats all the time because I think it's a a money scam. But uh, anyway, so when I was growing up, I laid in the back glass of the car while we drove down the road. Anybody remember that? Somebody else did that? All right, that's how I laid. And so when my wife and I argue about it, I'm like, hey, I lived. I survived. You know, but she's like, we're strapping those kids in. I'm, okay. But car seats, that's a whole new deal, right? And, and uh, don't even get me started. Like, car seats expired. Do you all know that car seats expire? I don't know how plastic expires, but it does. Uh, it's, a, again, a money, a money racket. All right, moving on. So car seats is a, is a new deal. Um, and then, how about cell phones? Do y'all remember life before cell phones? I remember when you wanted to make a phone call, you had to like be at a place with the thing on a wall that was connected by a little cord, right? Uh, and I don't know if you remember phone booths, but you could, there was a, a phone booth that you could put a quarter in and you make a phone call. That, that's different, right? I mean, now... When I was growing up, in high school, we got a bag phone. Who remembers those? We put a, a bag in the car, and you pull up this little antenna, and you pull the phone out, and it's on a cord, and, and then you make a phone call like that. We were, we were big time, the three boys, because we had a bag phone um, in our car. That was different. Well, now cell phones, you know, I've got one in my pocket. Probably most of us here do. Uh, it's just part of life, right? What about the Internet? Thank goodness for Al Gore creating the internet for us. Um, but we have the internet, the World Wide Web, where, you know, uh, when I was a kid, we had, probably like a lot of you, we had a, a selection of books that some door-to-door salesman had sold us, the World Book Encyclopedia, right? You remember those? Uh, and uh, so anytime we wanted to know what something was, mom and dad were like, go, go get it. It's in the S's. We have to go get the S and pull it out and read. No, you don't do that anymore. You just Google, right? <laughs> pull up your phone and... You just Google because we have the internet, the World Wide Web. I'm just thinking about how things have changed over the years. One of the things that has changed is family dinners. It's probably different for every family, but when I was a kid, we, we actually ate dinner together as a family almost, almost every night. I don't know how my mom did it. She worked a full-time job. She came home. She cooked a meal while us boys, you know, this is the other thing that was different is when we'd get home from school, they'd say, get out, go outside, go, go. Don't come back till dark. That was different, right? We don't do that with our kids much anymore. But we were forbidden to be in the house until it was about dark, unless it was raining. 
When we'd come home, mom would have a meal cooked, and we'd sit around the table, and we'd actually like look at each other and have a meal. Family dinners was a little bit different. Um, one thing I've noticed a trend with is that relationships are different. Um, we went to Chick-fil-A. I took my kids. That's their favorite place to go. So we took, took the kids to Chick-fil-A, and I saw that they had these little boxes where if everybody at the table puts their cell phone in the box and keeps it in the box during dinner, you get a free ice cream. Have y'all seen that? It's something, I guess, Chick-fil-A's trying to do where they're trying to get people to actually have a, have a conversation, and they're motivating you with like an ice cream. And somehow it works, you know? But we, we put our phones in the box, and we seal the box up, and we actually look across each other face-to-face and have a conversation. It's just crazy that restaurants are having to convince us to do that. But that's the world that we live in today. Things have changed, especially with relationships. Talking about your friendships, um, today people friend you, or they follow you, or they snap you. Um, I don't even know what that is. But back when I was, I mean, we just had friends, right? It wasn't just this sort of social media networking where we, you know, stalked people online. It was like we actually cared about people and had a relationship with people, but things have, things have changed. So I, I want to talk to us today about how Jesus loves. And I want to ask you and me some particular questions about your relationships, your friendships. When and why do you make friends? And how do you do that? Those are the two big questions I want us to look at the way Jesus does it, why he does it, and how he does it. They're pretty specific Things And we're just going to look at one aspect of that today, but um, we're wrapping up this series about loving like Jesus. So just to review, because it's been stretched out a bit, we started by saying Jesus forgives sinners. So as a result, we also ought to forgive those who wrong us. We ought to extend forgiveness to sinners. Last week, we talked about how Jesus serves those he loves. We looked specifically at how Jesus washed the feet of his disciples even moments before his death. And this week we're talking about how Jesus is the friend of sinners. So with all of that, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And I just want to pick up, and we're actually going to stand in a moment and read from Luke 5, but I do want you to see this section of the scripture here in Luke 7. Um, look with me, if you will, at verse 28. To give you a little bit of backstory, Jesus Um, has just uh, been asked a lot of questions about John the Baptist. And so he's affirming that John the Baptist is um, the greatest man born of woman, is actually what he says in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So when all the people heard this... And the tax collectors, too, they declared God is just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But look at verse 30. Look at what this says. It says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. You may want to underline that. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. That's that's an indicting statement, is it? 
to, to reject the purpose of God for yourself? I want us to look at the next few verses, what Jesus says in response to their rejection. He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. He, he kind of makes fun of this song. We played a flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. So you, you may say, what in the world does that mean? Well, here's, here's what he's going to explain. He, he's going to explain John the Baptist was a particular kind of guy, and Jesus is a particular kind of guy. They're very different. Um, I'll explain that in a second, but just read with me these next three verses. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That last phrase, friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by all her deeds. So two quick things, just some background on, on these two guys. John the Baptist, remember, he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's a miraculous birth. Zechariah is a priest who um, didn't believe when, when God revealed to him that he was going to have a baby. He didn't believe. And his wife, Elizabeth, was old. And, and, but God gave them a son. And when their son was born, they took the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow. So that includes a lot of things, but among them is no bread, no wine, don't cut your hair. It was a very um, official diet he had to be on. He took this vow. And what that made for him is he, he lived a particular kind of life, kind of isolated, out in the wilderness, if you will. So when he came on the scene at about 30 years old preaching, the people didn't have a clue who he was. I mean, he just comes out of the woods wearing camel hair and eating bugs and honey, preaching, repent. And all the people are looking at this guy like, this is a weird dude. He's got a demon. That's what they said of him. But Jesus, the contrast to John the Baptist is they knew exactly who Jesus was. He had grown up the son of a carpenter. When Jesus came on the scene preaching, they said, isn't this Joseph's boy? We know who this guy is. How, how in the world is he preaching with such authority? We know who this I mean, who is this Jesus? And his own rejected him as well. Two very different kinds of people. And Jesus is bringing to light that John the Baptist was isolated and separated. And he, he did this whole Nazarite vow thing, which kind of kept him out of some relationships. But Jesus... Spent his days around the table, eating, drinking, getting to know people, building relationships. And when he preached the same message, they rejected them both. And Jesus is saying to them, what gives? You reject him saying he's got a demon. You reject me saying that I'm a glutton and a drunkard and, and a friend of sinners. You're just rejecting the purpose of God for you. So what I want to focus on uh, really is one thing that they say about him. They, they accuse Jesus of two things. They accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard, which we know is false. All right? He wasn't a glutton and he wasn't a drunkard. And how do we know that? Well, the Bible says he was sinless, and the Bible says gluttony and, and drunkenness is, is sin. So we know that he wasn't those things. But the next accusation, they say, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That one is true. 
I want us to talk about what it means to be a friend of sinners. Because Jesus doesn't deny this accusation. In fact, what I want to do is take us today to where that accusation originated. And I want us to look at a passage specifically where um, Jesus demonstrates his love and his friendship for tax collectors and sinners. And I want us to talk through that a good bit. As we go there, what does it mean to be a friend? We're talking about relationship. We're talking about um, loving as a friend. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he approves of sinners. doesn't mean that he's okay with sin. That's not what being a friend means. It's not what love means. Love doesn't mean approval. Can, can we agree in this room that you can love someone you disagree with? You can love someone that you say, that's not okay. What you're doing, how you're living is not okay, but I love you. Can we agree that, that that's possible? Um, Rick Warren has a quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. It's, it's, um, I've seen it on social media a good bit. Here's his quote. He says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. I think it's a good quote. I think it's a very good thought. Um, So long as it doesn't serve to excuse us so, so that we don't show love to those with whom we disagree. So what I want to talk to us about is learning to live in the tension of um, loving sinners. And what does that look like? So we're going to look at Jesus and how he loves tax collectors and sinners, how he befriends tax collectors and sinners. We're going to just make some observations and see what we can learn from that. So, we're in Luke 7. What I want you to do is take your Bibles and flip two chapters back to chapter 5 and stand with me. This is the passage we're going to focus on. So would you stand as we read Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. Luke 5, 27 through 31. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. I imagine there's a lot that happened between that verse or maybe a lot of thought that's happening in Levi's mind. But the very next verse just sort of summarizes what's given us the facts of what unfolded. 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you you recognize that phrase? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come... To call, I've, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, would you be our teacher today? Open our eyes to truth. Help us, God, to uh, 
to have ears to hear, hearts that are soft, and lives that are willing to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I hope you got one of the teaching outlines for today. We're going to walk through that um, this morning. I just want us to observe three things that Jesus does and hopefully make um, some applications to our lives from this text in Luke 5. So Jesus is accused in Luke 7 of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the reason that accusation is legit is because it's true. I mean, he has recruited Levi. Now we know him as Matthew, who wrote, who wrote Matthew's gospel. He recruited Levi straight from the tax collector booth. I mean, he's sitting there doing his deal. And Jesus walks right up to him in the middle of the moment of sin, right? And so just to give us a little background on, on a tax collector, these are the guys who, um, they're typically Jews like Levi, who have betrayed their own people by working for an oppressive government, Rome, charging more tax than Rome wants and pocketing the surplus. Does that make sense? So if you owed $100, Levi would tell you you owe $130. And he's going to say, pay up or I'm going to send the guards to arrest you and you better pay up. And when you pay the 130, he's going to cut Rome their $100 check and pocket 30. And it just depends. I mean, he's just, you know, if he decided he wanted a new boat, he'd charge you 170, you know. Just whatever he wanted, he'd just charge you the surplus. That's why these guys were hated. They were hated. But not by Jesus. Jesus goes to sinners. That's point number one. Jesus goes to sinners. If we're not careful, we miss this point. We, we miss the fact that Levi is actually at the tax booth where he's collecting the money, where he is actively um, wronging people. Like imagine the guy in line in front of Jesus just got cheated and he walks away and Levi's pocketing some money and Jesus walks up and goes, hey, follow me. This conversation, I don't know if there was more to it, but we're just getting the short version from Luke. Jesus says, follow me. We are to be in the world and not of the world. You've heard that before probably. We are to go to sinners. There's a, there's a model of doing church that says, well, we'll just invite them to come here. And that's totally fine. Let's invite the world in. Let's welcome the world in. But that's not going to be our only way of making disciples. We're going to go. We've got to go to sinners. Like we go to where they are. What, is, what does that look like? You know, uh, a lot of people say that holiness, to live a holy life, means that you've got to be separated from the world. And, and there's something to that. Like I agree, the word holy means separate. Um, the Lord says in 1 Peter, be holy even as I'm holy. And certainly there means, that, that definitely means there, there must be some separation there. But 
It can't mean like total separation or the example that Jesus gives us is flawed. Like he goes to sinners. So our Lord's methods challenge our notions of holiness. When we think of holiness primarily as separation, what happens is we end up isolating ourselves from the very people we hope to reach. And somehow we've got to find a way to to walk in the tension of being in the world and not of the world. Of being with tax collectors and sinners and not being a tax collector and sinner. We've got to find a way to be with them without being among them. Is this making sense? But to follow Jesus' example, we've got to go to the lost. We've got to stop sitting back and saying, well, they'll come to us. No, they won't. Most of them won't. So we've got to go to the lost. Let me give you three quick reminders. These are not in your notes. You may want to write these down. How do we navigate that tension? So just three quick uh, reminders. Here they are. If... Um, if you struggle with um, alcohol, maybe you, you're a recovering alcoholic, you probably don't want to go to the bar to, to meet people to share the gospel with them. You probably don't, unless you've totally conquered that. So the first reminder is this, know your limitations. Know your limitations. Um, know your struggles. Know your temptations. Be careful lest you be tempted. Know your limitations, all right? Number two, these are just quick reminders of how you can go to the lost, all right? Number two, um, keep a redemptive purpose. So the goal of being with sinners is not just to hang out. It's not just to, well, I really enjoy partying with these guys. It's not just that. It's to be with them for the goal of calling them to Christ. Redemptive purpose. To build genuine relationships, genuine friendships for the purpose of calling them to Christ. Jesus goes to the tax collector booth, but he doesn't sit down and collect taxes with him. He calls him, come and follow me. We'll talk about that in a second. Then the third reminder is this. Remember who you were and who Christ is. So here's what I mean by that. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us You were once Gentiles in the flesh. So here's the reminder. Remember that you were just like him or her. Remember who you were. It'll keep you humble and it'll keep you gracious. It'll keep you from thinking you're better than somebody else. Remember who you were and who Christ is. Meaning Christ is your holiness. You're not holy. He's holy and he's in you. And he makes you who you are. So remember who you were and who Christ is. Those three things. Know your limitations. Keep a redemptive purpose. And remember who you were and who Christ is. Quick question for you. Where and how are you purposefully going to the lost? Where and how are you purposefully going to the lost? Just want you to think in your mind. Maybe something for you and... and, and your family to think about later. You know, how are we intentionally going to people around us who need Jesus? That's number one. Jesus goes to sinners. Aren't you thankful because he went to you? He came to you. He came to me. Number two. Jesus calls 
Levi, Jesus calls him out and welcomes him in. He calls him out and he welcomes him in. Jesus calls him out and welcomes him in. So the call to follow me equals leave everything else. Levi knew that. This is what's amazing to me that's not in the text. You kind of read between the lines and you know, um, just think about that moment. Levi's sitting there. He's just pocketed some money from, from this guy. He's kind of keeping up with his books. And Jesus walks up and goes, hey man, you follow me. And just imagine Levi kind of like, like now? Like right now. Because I've kind of got all of this. What am I going to do with this money? What am I going to do with these books? And he's just sort of looking at Jesus. All those questions rolling through his mind of like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? Like, how am I going to come back to it? And he just, I'm just imagining him looking at Jesus and Jesus just saying, in his mind, with his eyes, you're not coming back to it. And we know Levi understood it. He got the message. You know how we know? Because the very next words says, and leaving everything. Here's the thing, following Jesus equals leaving everything. I, I love um, this thought that, that uh, the Lord was teaching me this week. Won't this, hopefully this will resonate with you. The worth, the worth of something is always determined by what you're willing to lose in order to get it. Does that make sense? Um, let me phrase it another way that maybe fits our culture a little better. Worth is determined by the buyer, right? If I tell you my car's worth 10 grand, but I can only sell it for eight, what's my car worth? Eight. Worth is determined by, by what you're willing to pay for it. That's what worth is determined by. So look at what Jesus is worth. I love it. Jesus says, Follow me. And Levi says, he's worth leaving everything. That's the gospel. So I just want to encourage you to, to consider Levi's sacrifice. He had to make a choice, and he knew if he walked away from his tax booth, he would certainly lose it all. It was going to cost him his job. No doubt he's not going to be able to come back to it. But looking at Jesus and thinking about all he had gained as a tax collector, he still looks at Jesus and goes, Yep, Jesus is better, leaving it all. For Levi, Jesus was worth it all. And I hope that you have found that to be true also. So we consider Levi's sacrifice. I also want to consider the disciples' surprise. So um, think about for a minute, Jesus has already got some disciples following him as they walk up to this tax booth and Jesus says to a tax collector and sinner, follow me. I'm just imagining, again, reading between the lines, but I'm imagining Peter going, what in the world? You, this guy? Him? He's, he's going to come be, be one of us? Are you kidding me? I'm just imagining, you know, we're talking about fishermen who are reasonable, good, blue-collar guys. They just work hard days work, you know. This dude's a cheat. I mean, imagine the thoughts and feelings that come up in your own mind when you think about Jesus recruiting this guy. 
the disciples have to be shocked. They have to be surprised. They must be um, surprised by Jesus. I wonder if sometimes we're shocked by the, the friends that Jesus makes. Um, one thing I've noticed about myself that I'm trying to change is that the kind of people Jesus spent his life befriending are the kind of people I usually try to avoid. And I don't know if, if you resonate with that, but I want to tell you that I want to repent of that. I do not want to be the kind of guy who's going to like rub Jesus and go, hey man, you don't want to, you don't want to call him. Not, not, not Levi. I don't want to be the guy behind Jesus tapping his shoulder to tell him how bad that guy is. I want to watch my Savior befriending sinners and come right alongside and be like, yes, welcome, welcome to the family. I can imagine this is a struggle for the disciples to bring in a guy that's been cheating their families. I mean, imagine to welcome him in as a friend and do life with him as family. I can imagine this is a major struggle. Romans 15, 7, Leslie read it earlier. Um, here's what Romans 15, 7, it says, Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. That's pretty good. Welcome one another as Christ welcomes you. Number three. Number three. So Jesus calls him out and welcomes him in. And thirdly, Jesus eats and drinks to call sinners to repent. Jesus eats and drinks. It's right there in the text in two different chapters. This, this whole idea of Jesus eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. Eating, eating and drinking. We could, I mean, you could keep reading in this chapter. Um, and the... The guys are objecting to this whole idea throughout. I mean, verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. I mean, eating and drinking was a, was a theme. You know, their accusation against Jesus for eating and drinking, it sticks. I mean, he does a lot of eating and drinking. We walk through... Um, the text for a minute. I mean, let's just think about how, how much of Jesus' ministry happens around meals. I, I was just thinking this week, I didn't do any like research on this. I was just thinking through my mind of stories and things that happen um, in, in, in Jesus' ministry around the table, around a meal. Like, think about it for a minute. Mary and Martha preparing a meal. Martha busy about all the stuff trying to get things prepared and Jesus shows up and Mary's just at his feet and Martha's like Jesus tell tell my sister to help me in the kitchen he's like Martha you're busy with a lot of things but she's she's chosen this this one thing can't be taken from her let her worship that teaching where does it happen at the table Simon, a Pharisee, hosts a meal and invites Jesus to come. And he's welcomed him in, thinking he's all pious. Jesus comes, sits at the table. They're having a great conversation. In comes this woman, 
of the streets who brings an alabaster jar, breaks the perfume, anoints Jesus, and here comes some teaching. Simon was prideful. This woman was humble. Simon thought a lot of himself. She didn't think much of herself. She worshipped and Simon was speculative. And Jesus does a lot of teaching at the table. Zacchaeus, wee little man, up in a tree. Another tax collector, mind you. Jesus sees him in the tree and says, Hey man, you come down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. Right? They go back to Zacchaeus' house. They have a good meal together. And after that meal, Zacchaeus gives away most of his fortune. This happened where? At the table. Jesus broke bread for thousands of people. He sat them down in a field. He had the guys pass out the food in baskets. and He sat them down and he talked to them. He said, you know what? I know you're hungry for food, but I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread from heaven. And anybody who eats from me will never be hungry again. Where did that kind of teaching happen? At at the table, around a meal, lots of eating and drinking. Jesus ate the Lord's Supper with his disciples many times. And one, one particular time, he says, I've really longed to have this meal with you guys because it's at this meal that I'm going to tell you that these symbols no longer represent a lamb back in Egypt. This now represents my body and my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Where does that teaching happen? Around the table. Jesus sat and ate fish after he resurrected from the dead. He walks in. The guys are shocked he's there. They can't believe it. He's got this ghost-like body that walked through a wall. And then he says, hey, I'm hungry. You guys have some fish? They sit down and have a meal. And Jesus shows them what kind of body he's gonna, he, he has and that we're going to have by <coughs> eating a meal at the table. That's just a few little examples of how Jesus did a lot of his ministry, a lot of his disciple-making happened eating and drinking. So the accusation that Jesus eats and drinks a lot, it sticks. Now, was he a glutton and a drunkard? No. But here's what he knew. The table breaks down some barriers for people. Like we sit at the table and we eat. Let me ask you this. Who do you eat with? Probably people you want to know, people you want to love, people you want to do life with. You sit down to a meal because you you know it's going to take an hour, hour and a half maybe to sit to a, a good meal together. And you know that time is an investment into a person. Jesus knew that. He just took advantage of three meals a day maybe having a relationship with the people across the table. So we've talked a lot about why he came. Jesus came to forgive sinners. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. This is why he came. And today we're talking about another why he came to love, to friend sinners. But how did he do it? How did he do it? Around the table, like eating and drinking, having a meal through regular life. He did it in regular life. And here's what I want to tell us. We don't have to have crazy big programs, crazy things that we funnel a bunch of money in as a church. And I'm thankful we don't. What I want to tell you is here's what we need. We need to do life with people. We need to have meals with people. We need to be in life groups with one another. But we need to welcome people to the table. We need to 
throw parties. Look at what happens in this story. Levi leaves his tax booth. He comes and follows Jesus. And the very next thing that happens is he throws a party for all his lost buddies. And who goes to the party? Jesus goes to the party. With every new disciple comes a new mission field. When you come to Christ, the people you came out of now become the mission. Does that make sense? When Levi left the tax collector world, he now became Jesus' in to the tax collector world. He left a world of partying and he took Jesus to the party. Jesus, forgive me for saying this, but he partied with a purpose. I mean, he did. He partied with a purpose. He went to the party on purpose, with redemptive purpose. That's what he tells us at the end of Luke 5, 32. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It brings us back to point number one. I'm going to go to where they are. Levi's throwing a party. They're going to be there. It's going to be a jam up time. I'm going. Jesus goes. Now, he had a way of being with them and not among them. And this is where we've got to learn to walk the line, right? And there's some places you don't need to go because you can't handle it. And I don't need to go because I can't handle it. I'm not Jesus. But we can learn from his example. Here's a couple of exhortations. Share a meal. Share a meal with people. You eat every day. Do it with people on purpose. Let's, let's not let the world tell us how we have our meals, like TV trays in front of a sitcom. Let's bring people to the table and use our meals like Jesus used his meals. I want to bring new light maybe to a verse that maybe we quote or we know. Go, follow me in your Bibles because I want you to underline this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 31, in light of what we see from Jesus using eating and drinking for ministry, in light of what we see from Jesus about his eating and his drinking for ministry, I want us to read a passage that we probably know and quote, but I want you to read it with a little more intentionality. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Look at it with me. Straight from the Apostle Paul, here's what he says. So, whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want you to think about the example that Jesus gives us and how intentional he is with mealtime. And now think about what the Apostle Paul says. He says, so whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Who do you eat with? Who do you eat with? Are there lost people at your table? Are you welcoming people to the table that need to know Christ? Are you going to their table? Are you pushing yourself to press into a world maybe you're a little uncomfortable with, but they invite you, you, you go. Are you going to sinners? So to love like Jesus, 
we must be a friend to sinners. Now, going back to the beginning, doesn't mean, friend doesn't mean approval, doesn't mean um, acceptance of a particular way of life or particular choices. It doesn't mean acceptance, it just means love. It just means this is a person created in God's image and I'm going to love them. So we be a friend to sinners. We invite them to follow Christ and become family. This, just like Jesus says, come and follow me. We, we extend that invitation. Come follow Christ. Come and be with us. We extend that invitation. We share meals and we do life together for the gospel. Like We just do life together. doesn't have to be fancy. Just have a meal and do life together. And then we join together to reach others for Christ. We can't, I'm just walking through that text, right? Jesus is a friend to Levi. He invited him to follow him and welcomed him into his family. He shared a meal. He ate and drank with him for the gospel. And then lastly, he joined Levi in Levi's mission. So if we're going to follow Jesus' example, that's the way we do it. We welcome people in and then we go with them back to their world to help them win their friends for Christ. Christ. 